So let's get back to what we're doing in here. So what we're doing right now is I'm teaching a series of devotionals that in 18 months should be on the shelves as my third devotional book. Uh, the first one y'all have got, the one on the Psalms. The second one is uh, the, the publisher sending me back the print to work on. And, and uh, um, I've got to have it uh, edited and back to them by the middle of July or something. And then uh, um, that's due out in October or November. So we'll, we'll be eager to give each of y'all a copy of that. But then the next one that comes out the next year is what I'm writing right now. So these are devotionals that'll be in a devotional book from the life and teachings of Jesus. Meanwhile, at the end of class today, we've got a book to give you, and I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. I'm really excited for you to get this book, and uh, we'll talk about that. But let's get to the devotionals. Now, the way this works is I've got five or six, depending upon how long, when did I get as we go through them. We'll get through as many as we can. If I get too long-winded, we skip the last one or two uh, because I want to make sure I talk to you about this book. Uh, if, but, but because they're all small vignettes, feel free to sleep through the ones you don't like and just alert the person sitting next to you. I'm kind of bored on this one. Elbow me when he gets to the next one. And it's real easy just to pick back up with the next one. I've got two young ladies up here on the front row who have told me that they'll be listening very carefully and they will be glad to tell me which ones need to stay out of the book. They said they'd just tell me, that one's, you can do better. So I'm glad to have them here. Here's the first devotional. Don't get it backwards. Don't get it backwards. John 13, 13 and 14 says the following. You call me teacher and Lord. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. You call me teacher and Lord and you're right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash another's feet. Jesus says, if I've served you and I'm your Lord and teacher, you should serve others. Now, why do I say don't get it backwards? <laughs> By the way, do you know how hard it was to find that picture? I initially tried to just take one of Becky doing that, but it didn't work. She can't turn her head that far around. You call me, do, do, do you see where it's backwards? Look at the passage. I've put it in red. You call me, Jesus said, y'all, my disciples, call me teacher, Lord, and you're right, I'm those things. But you've got it backwards. It's Lord first, teacher second. See, Jesus is Lord first. He's teacher second. The reason he's a teacher of merit, the reason he's a teacher we should listen to, the reason he's a teacher we should follow, isn't simply because he's really good at teaching or he's got some really good ideas. <clears throat> By the way, I'm losing my voice. <laughs> I was losing it this last week in trial. Many of you are praying for us in trial. Thank you for that. 
be praying that I don't lose it for tomorrow. It's kind of rough up here, but it is what it is. So this is important, Jesus says. He's not just a good teacher with good ideas and a nice manner. He's the Lord. That means what he's teaching has the authority. That means we listen to him. Heavens, we should be listening to him even if he were a bad teacher. If he's the Lord, it just so happens he's the teacher of teachers. He was a phenomenal teacher. You can find people who don't believe in Jesus. You can find agnostics, atheists. You can find uh, 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 people of all sorts of religious persuasions who will readily admit he was an amazing teacher. But if we just look to him and say, aren't these marvelous moral lessons he taught us? Oh, turn the other cheek. You know, love your neighbor. Uh, 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 you know, pray. Um, take care of the, the wounded and the injured. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Be the salt of the earth. Yeah, marvelous lessons. He was a great teacher. But if that's all you see, you have missed what really makes him the teacher we follow. And that is that he is Lord. So don't get it backwards. Don't think of him as teacher first and Lord second. Lord is not an afterthought. It's the first thought. He's to be the Lord of our lives as well as the teachers of our minds. And that's why when we see the Lord and teacher, serving others, washing feet, we try to do the same. So before I leave this, let me ask you this devotional question. Where in your life can you improve? This is the question I'm asking me. I'm letting you in. Where in my life can I improve on serving others? And when I ask myself that question, I come up with more answers than could fill a page. Because I can improve on serving others that are near and dear to me. I can, I can do a better job serving my, my wife. I can do a better job serving my children, serving my siblings, serving my mom, serving my nieces and nephews. I can do a better job. But it's extended beyond that. I can do a better job serving you. I can do a better job trying to minister to you, trying to make sure that my energies and my efforts are about you in this class. I can do a better job serving the people I work with. Really hard when you're in trial. We've got a massive team up there. We've four weeks down, two weeks to go in St. Louis. I've got, I think I've got dozens of people up there working along with my clients. It's a massive enterprise. And it's real easy for me to turn it into something that's all centered on what I'm trying to do and how I get ready for the witnesses and how I need this, that, and the other. But it shouldn't be that way. I need to do a better job at making sure that other people's needs are met, that I minister to them. People I don't even know. People at the law firm. We need to be service-minded. That's the way we reflect the love of Jesus. 
but that's also part of recognizing he is Lord and teacher. You with me? All right, if you, if you need to wake someone up on that one, elbow them, we're moving to the next one. Don't fake flatter God. Do not fake flatter God. Here's the passage from Matthew 22, 15 and 18. Teacher, we know that you are true. These are some skeptics coming up to Jesus. We know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. You tell us then, Jesus, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? I mean, here's the backstory. These are people that wanted to trap Jesus and get Jesus in trouble. So they took some Herodians with them. You're thinking, who's a Herodian? Good question. Herod was the king. Actually, Herod the Great was when Jesus was born, but he died shortly thereafter. But Herod's continued to rule. And so the Herodians are the ones who make money off of the taxes. The Herodians are the ones who are looked to by Rome to see that the taxes are paid properly and that there's peace in the area. The Jews at the time were not real fond of paying taxes. I know, it's the 4th of July week. We all love to pay taxes. They didn't like it either. Especially because they viewed it as a pagan tax. It was a tax to pay the pagan Caesar who claimed to be a pagan god. So there was a, 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 a rub, there was a, a, a religious irritation. Like paying taxes is somehow giving Caesar status as God. Idolatry. So it was a huge religious, cultural, personal issue with a lot of people. You want to score points with the Jewish population? Be one of the people who stand up and say, Rome has no right to our taxes. Caesar has no right to our money. Who does he think he is, God? And you score points with the population. They're like, yeah, yeah. The problem is, if the government heard you say it, they did not have a First Amendment freedom of speech. It would be viewed as sedition or treason. It could be the basis of your life. Especially if you add to it Let's get a little, let me, let me go lawyer on you for a minute. You do something wrong in America, you got to worry about the cops who arrest you 
And then you got to worry about either the DA or one of the DA's assistants prosecuting the district attorney, or you got to worry about if it's a federal crime, the U.S. attorney or one of hers or his assistants prosecuting you. In the Roman time, they didn't have that. They had private prosecution. I see you do something wrong. I can take you to court and prosecute you criminally. Your life can be forfeit. That's why the Jews brought the Herodians. They wanted witnesses. So if Jesus said something seditious against Rome, they could arrest him. Meanwhile, if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, those Jews that were so fervent in their nationalistic Judaism would peter away from Jesus' audience. Why are we following him? He's basically a Roman. He endorses giving money to Caesar. So that's the trap that was laid. Now, just like Satan lays traps for us, <clears throat> the, 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 the trap was not laid in an obvious manner. The, the, the Jews that came to entrap Jesus didn't jump out and say, hey, we think we have figured out how to trap you. We got a question that's going to make you look either stupid or anti-government. So try to word your way out of this one. Because if they'd come that way to you or to me, we'd have just said, I'm not dealing with you right now, and turned around and walked away, and no one would blame us. So instead, they come to Jesus with this fake flattery. They come to Jesus and they call him teacher. Teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully. We know you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. That's fake flattery. That's absolute. You know, it may sound like praise, but it's not. I think you know, many of you know, most of you probably know the end of the story. You don't try to outsmart the one who created the entire universe and can read your mind. That's like really 101 of how to live practically with God. Hey, I, watch this. I'm going to outsmart God. He'll never get this one. I'm thinking of a number between one and five. He knows how many fingers you're holding up. You ain't got a chance, Okay. So Jesus says to him, he says, uh, give me your tax coin. The tax coin had a big picture of Caesar on it. They give him a tax coin. He says, whose who's picture's on here? They said, well, Caesar's. 
flips the coin back to him and says, you give Caesar what belongs to him and you give God what belongs to him. They're kind of like, ooh, hadn't thought of that one. They kind of leave. Don't fake flatter God. Authenticity matters. Jesus calls them a hypocrite because they were. They didn't mean that praise. They didn't mean those things they said to him. God knows the difference between flattery and praise. When you come before God, remember that. He's not going to, hey, I really need God on this one. Watch this. I'm going to really, I know how to get him. Oh, Lord, you are amazing. Think he's listening? He knows the difference. We need to be authentic in our lives. Our lives need to be real and genuine. Church is not a game. Worship is not a game. It's not an entertainment time. It's not a time for us to make it about us. Our prayers are, are, are not just an expression. You, you, you say in a prayer, it's not for the benefit of the people listening. You're talking to the Lord God Almighty. Our worship needs to be coming into the presence of the Lord God Almighty. The Psalms say that strength is found in God's throne room. You want the strength of God? You've got to get into His presence. You've got to worship Him. But it needs to be authentic. We need to be real people. It can't be a show. It can't be a game. God knows the difference. We should as well. Okay, next one. If your neighbor fell asleep, elbow him. Jesus, a worthy teacher. By the way, if you're following the theme, Janet, I almost did you a roadmap. Janet's been laughing about my roadmaps at trial. I always do roadmaps so the jury has a clue of how long it's going to be, where we're going, and why we're doing what we're doing. And I put the roadmap up there pretty much at the start. <clears throat> the roadmap tomorrow is going to be the muddying the waters for the witness we have tomorrow. But uh, the, the Mississippi River is right there. It's real muddy. Anyway, the roadmap through this, if I had done one, all of these have a common theme, all of these devotionals. So I want you to see if you can figure out what it is before we're done. Jesus a worthy teacher, Mark 12. Here's the passage. And one of them, one of the scribes came up and he heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that, he answered them well. He heard, this is Jesus disputing. He, he asked him, Jesus says, an answer, he asked him a question, Jesus answers. And the scribe says, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he's one and there's no one beside him. Let's, uh, I couldn't fit the whole passage up there. Let's go to Mark 12, 28 on the Elmo. Let me show it to you here. It's, it's an amazing passage because there's a really cool thing that happens. It's um, 12, 28. Let's get this. We want a little light. Bam, bam, bam. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, now we're there. Um, Okay, I just can't. All right, that works. You got it? 
Y'all able to see it? One of the scribes comes up. He hears Jesus or he, and hears them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, the scribe asked him, which commandments the most important of all? Now, a scribe is someone who copies the law. That was their job. That means they had to not only know how to read and write, but they had to know how to prepare paper generally, which for them was parchment or would be papyrus, a number of different ways. But generally, if it's scripture that they wanted to keep, they would write it on, on, on tanned leather, leather hides. You got to know how to prepare your inks. You can't just go to the store and buy a couple of paper mate pens. So being a scribe involved not only all of the technical know-how, but you had to know how to read and you had to know how to write. If, if you were making a, a, a Jewish, Jewish scribes were, were smart and they knew the Jewish law very well. That was their livelihood, copying it. So one of the scribes, one of these people who writes the law, came up and said to Jesus, which commandment in the law is the most important of all? And Jesus answered. And he said, the most important one. By the way, I, I like the fact that Jesus answered him here. Jesus didn't say, ah, come on. And this was a genuine question. The guy wanted to know Jesus' position on it. So Jesus said, all oh, the most important one is, here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's from Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for here, which is the first word in this. If we were reading it in Hebrew, let's say Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, Lord our God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. I want to pause for a moment and tell you that this was actually a debated issue in the day of Jesus, there was a Jewish rabbi who was well-known. Actually, there were two different Jewish rabbinical camps, one of Shammai and one of Hillel. And the camp of Hillel was viewed a little bit more user-friendly. They were, they were a little bit... Well, uh, the, the illustration that you can read about in the early... Um, era Jewish commentaries that talk about this. And by early, I mean this is written down in 200 AD, but it's passed down through the sages before that, that, that a Gentile went up to the, to the Jewish rabbi Shammai and said, if you can, in essence, teach me the entire law in... Um, a sentence, I'll convert. I'll become a Jew. And the rabbi takes his stick and starts beating the guy and says, get out of my way, pagan. 
So the Gentile goes up to the Rabbi Hillel and says, if you'll teach me the law in one sentence, I'll convert and become a Jew. And the rabbi says, or no, what wasn't in one sentence. It was while I'm standing on one leg. I think that was it. Um, which for me is about one sentence. That's why it's transposed in my brain. And he said, in essence, the second part of this, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do it to other people. Either that or he gave it the first part. I didn't plan on putting this in here. My memory is vague. But he's one of those two commandments that Jesus gives. He gives and he says the rest of the law is all commentary on that. So just go do that. And that, that, that's a well-known story. Jesus is, is aligning here. He's not only telling us truth, but he's aligning here with someone who's very user-friendly. Someone who's looking to bring people in to love the Lord, not drive them away. So this is an invitational comment. The most important one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. That's out of Leviticus. There's no other great, no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he's one and there's no one beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's kind of like, game over. I like that. I like that because Jesus draws the focus on who God is and our need to love God. But then Jesus gives the bonus question that the guy never asked. Because right on the heels of that first great commandment comes a second. You don't want those two to be a part in your brain. They're both important. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you also love your neighbors as yourself. If, there, if, if I could snap my fingers and change the perception of me and the perception of the church in the eyes of the public, if I could just go bam and change it, you know what it would be? That we are known as a people of love. That we are known as a people who love the poor, who love the downtrodden, who love the disadvantaged, who really genuinely care. I wish in the public arena, the concept was, oh, they're a Christian? They must be giving their heart, soul, mind, and strength to loving others. I fear that's not the perception of us often. And I, I, that grieves me. And any way that I've contributed to that not being the right perception grieves me and drives me to the Lord to say, I, I'm so sorry. We need to be known as people who not only read this stuff, but live it. He's not just teacher and Lord. He's Lord and teacher. Eh, okay, wake up your neighbor if you need to. 
Luke 7.40, Jesus is an interested teacher. Are you figuring out our theme? Teacher. This is like Teacher Appreciation Day or something. Luke 7.40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, I don't know how you grew up. I'll be 58 this year. And I've got my 40-year high school reunion coming up in Lubbock, Texas, the hub of the plains. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You wish you could go there too. What's, what is that? Last time I brought that up in this class, one of y'all, and I've mentioned it all the time because it still cracks me up, sent me this list of things about Lubbock being so flat. And it was like Lubbock, where you can watch your dog run away for three days. <laughs> See, another one. Lubbock, where you can stand on a can of tuna and see 30 miles. <laughs> Gotta love Lubbock. Um, anyway, I've got my 40-year high school reunion, and it's about three weeks away. It's uh, toward the end of July. And we're emailing back and forth, a lot of people in, in my graduating class, and posting on Facebook and all. And it's so interesting to me that 40 years after graduating from high school, I can still name for you some incredible teachers that I had. Sharon Kingston was an incredible teacher who changed my life. Jackie Jarrett was an incredible teacher who changed my life. Barbara Smith, now Barbara Gibbons, an incredible teacher who changed my life. I can name teachers who were horrible, but I won't. <laughs> Coach Wallace. Uh, I'm joking. I'm joking. He was a great guy. I really liked him as a coach. And um, he, was, he was our basketball coach, and he was, he was just great as a coach. And then we transitioned this, from basketball to track season. And I love to play basketball. I'll play basketball all day long. Running track, I just couldn't get that. I mean, it seems to me when you play basketball and it goes well, you score a goal. When you run track and it goes well, you're exhausted. I mean, that's all you get is tired. I, I, I never quite got it. Now, maybe if I could win at track, that'd be something. Uh, you know, I reached the point in basketball where the coach said, son, you need to get into debate. You're short, but you're slow. And that was not a good combination for basketball, but I enjoyed it at least. I can go back and look at these teachers and I can tell you great teachers that I had. And do you know one of the things that made them great teachers? They had things they wanted to teach. They had something they wanted to say. Jesus was a great teacher, but look at this. Jesus had, I mean, can you imagine Jesus coming up to you saying, Blake, I have something I want to say to you. I have something, James, I want to say to you. I have something I want to say to you. Gwen, Larry, Mark, whomever. I have something I want to say. I mean, I'd be all ears. 
I mean, look, our concept is if you need the answer, you climb the Himalayan mountain peak to find the wise sage to answer your question. You've seen it in the cartoons. You can Google that. Um, but you don't have to go climb some Himalayan mountain to find Jesus, to ask him a question. Jesus has something he wants to say to you. He's not disinterested. He's interested. So I love this passage. This may be the last one we have time for. Maybe we'll have time for one more. But I love this passage on three levels. This is like a three-layer cake to me. First of all, I love the passage because I love the backstory. Here's the backstory. Simon is a pretty righteous Jew. Self-righteous Jew. And he invites Jesus in for a meal. Now, these, these are not houses like our houses. Don't start thinking about how bizarre this would be in 21st century America because it would be pretty bizarre. But back then, you know, they, they didn't shut their houses in and have the air conditioning running. Back then, the doors are open, the windows are open, they're trying to create breeze, they want air, they want circulation, the houses are close together. You can, you can, in a small village, you can go in, you can go out. Jesus is in this home of Simon, and he's eating dinner, and in comes a, a, a sinner, which means she's probably a prostitute. And she comes in, and she's got an alabaster flask to anoint Jesus' feet, and she's just weeping over Jesus, and her tears are washing the dust off of his feet. She's trying to dry it with her hair so that she can anoint his feet with the oil. And Simon, inside his mind, is thinking, oh, this Jesus isn't all they say he is. Or he'd know in our village, she's the village prostitute. He'd know she's a sinner. And he'd put a stop to this. Well, Jesus was all that he claimed to be. It's just that what this man thought of God was not who God really is. Jesus knew the man's thoughts. And Jesus answered his thoughts when he said to him, Simon... I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. And he said, you know, manners says that when you have a guest come in, if you honor the guest, you wash their feet. You've been walking in the dust. Y'all have seen the jandals that they wore, the Jesus sandals. They're open. You, you washed the feet. You didn't. You didn't wash my feet at all. You didn't show me the honor. You didn't show me the courtesy. You didn't show me the cleanliness. I mean, yeah, it's not easy. 
it's not go turn on the faucet and get the water. You have to haul the water from the well. So it's, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. And you wouldn't do that. This woman's come in here to a foreign home where she's not invited. And she's so moved that she's done it with her tears. Who really needs being judged here? I really like that. I think that's just powerful. And I want to tell you, I think Simon learned from Jesus. And the reason I think that is Luke wrote this story. And, and if you read Luke carefully, you'll see that Luke all Luke says at the beginning of Luke and at the beginning of Acts, the other book he wrote, he says, I did this myself. I've investigated this. I've talked to the witnesses. I've done my homework. I know these things because I've checked them out. And then Luke will identify by name or some other way the people that came to faith later on. So when Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son, Luke will say that was the widow of Nain. And Luke will identify, he'll do it in Acts too, those people that came to faith. It's a way of, of, of noticing that, that he, bless you, that he not only investigated it, but he's able to call out by names those people who came to faith. So I think, I think Simon did. I think Simon became a believer. I think he listened. I want that for me. I want to be a listener. Jesus has something to say to us. I want to listen to what he has to say. I want to pay attention. I want to not just listen. I want to do. I want it to change who I am. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. Listen to Jesus and let him change who you are. Well, you can't teach an old dog a new trick. I'm not a dog and neither are you. Okay? And this isn't about fetch. I had a witness on the stand the other day who couldn't any more answer a question than the man in the moon. But I made some statement about the difference, not knowing the difference between come here and sick him. And she said, I don't understand what you mean. And I said, oh, it's a Lubbock expression, I guess, but it's the idea when you train a dog, if, if your dog doesn't know the difference between come here and sick him, that's a dangerous dog. I said, you need to know the difference. You, know, you, you may not be able to teach an old dog new tricks, but none of y'all are dogs. I don't care. Helen's not here this morning. She's 93 years old, generally here on the front row. She... God can change her life today. He can teach her something new. He has something to say to you. I was so touched when these ladies said they read my devotional. Because these ladies are at a stage in their lives where some people just shut down and say, hey, I am who I am. I'm not going to change. And they're listening for Jesus to speak to them through Scripture or through people who are teaching Scripture. And that's a marvelous thing. I don't want to be the same tomorrow. I don't want them to say, yeah, he peaked when he was 57. I want to be the closest I can ever be to Jesus the moment I die. I want to be someone who says, 
Listen, I'm listening. Change who I am. Change my heart. Draw me closer. And I hope you do too. We got time for one more before I do the book. He's God, not a genie. Matthew 10, 35. James and John, these like are holy Joes, okay? They're like mega apostles. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said, Hey, teacher, would you sign a blank check? Now, some of you are so young, you don't even know what a check is. (laughs) They used to be very important before the advent of ATMs. Would you, Jesus, would you uh, do for us whatever we ask? I mean, honestly, I think at least Three of our four daughters and our son, so four or five kids, did that in like first or second grade, maybe third grade. Sarah came up to me. All right, so here's the order of our kids. Will is our son. He's the oldest. And then we have Gracie, who works in Florida for Compassion International. Then we have Rachel, who's a lawyer with the firm out of the New York office. And then we have Rebecca, who's going to be a junior at Baylor. And then we have Sarah, who's going to be a sophomore at Baylor. Now, Rachel works with me, and she's in trial with me, and it's just so much fun. She's just a marvelous young lady who does a great job. And Rebecca and Sarah are interning this summer for Rachel. So they're at trial as well. So I'm having a ball. I've got my three girls, three of my four girls there. And it's just really, really good. But when Sarah, the youngest... Right below Rebecca, the youngest. You got the order? Sarah's in second or third grade, and she comes up to me and she says, Dad, you know I'm going to be a lawyer. And I said, Honey, I think that's wonderful. You'll be a great lawyer. And she said, Will you agree right now that I can own the law firm? My second grade daughter, third grade daughter, ready to come, you know, the fifth of five kids, ready. She wants me to sign that check (laughs) 15 years before she gets out of law school. And I said, honey, I, I can't make that promise to you right now. What if your brother or one of your sisters wants to be a lawyer? She said, I knew you were going to say that. She said, so I have one other request. I said, what's that? She said, will you at least promise I can be Rebecca's boss? (laughs) You know, and I can't really throw rocks at her. I am sure James and John looked at this years later and said, "Um, did we really say that? How embarrassing. Because, by the way, do you know what they ask? When Jesus comes into his kingdom, which they thought was going to be an earthly kingdom, they thought he was going to rule the earth, okay? When Jesus comes into his kingdom, can one of them sit on his right hand and the other on his left? So they're kind of like Sarah. They want want the positions of authority when the other apostles aren't around listening. It's kind of like, uh, we're going to go walk with Jesus for a minute. Y'all stay back there. Hey, Jesus, now that we've got you alone, we got an idea. Would you just go ahead right now and say, Whatever it is, game on. 
And Jesus says, well, you know, details, guys, details. All right, when you come into your kingdom, one of us on the right, one on the left. Can we get that promise now? Jesus says, you really have no clue what you're talking about, but I love you anyway. And that's the, the kind of the, the response in, in verbal speak. I got to tell you, they must have looked back at this and said, man, talk about sticking your foot in your mouth. I, 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 did I really, really say that? And Jesus uh, and God looks at us and says, yeah, you really did. And I got to tell you, I've said so many things. I, and I, I don't mean to digress, but I was trying a case in, um, in, a, in a town called Angleton, Texas. And I was teaching this class, but it was back when we were in the chapel because our attendance then was running about, I don't know, maybe a, a fourth of what it is now. And um, uh, so I was in the chapel and I'd come back for the weekend to teach and I'm standing up there and, I, and, and when I'm in trial, I'm sleeping four hours a night. I mean, my brain is just fried. All I can think about, you know, like right now I'm talking to you, but I'm going to cross-examine Dana Hollins tomorrow. And so half of my brain is thinking about what I'm going to do and cross-examining her while I'm talking to you right here. And so it, it makes for this weirdo presentation at times. And that Sunday morning, I used a word that where I grew up in Lubbock, it was not considered a bad or foul word. It just wasn't. It was an okay word to use. Well, it turns out, as I've learned in life, there are other places where it's not considered polite talk. Now, I'm not saying I dropped like the F-bomb or something. That's not acceptable anywhere in Lubbock or otherwise. But I'm telling you that I used a word. I'm sure you're dying to know what it is. I think it starts with C, ends with P, and has Ra in the middle. And I just said, I'm so sorry. I don't know why that came out of my mouth. I don't use, I used that word in school growing up, but once I got out in the world and realized some people take offense at it, I've tried real hard to remove that, da, 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 da. And, and um, I, so I feel horrible about it. I mean, I'm going to the Lord. Lord, should I just quit teaching? I mean, this is, look what I did. I'm so sorry. And um, I get an email and I call Louis Miori, my, my buddy who's on staff here, a pastor. I said, Louis, man, I just feel horrible. Let me tell you what I did. And he says, oh man, it was fine. You know, you apologize and all. And so uh, the next day I, I come, I, I finish court and I go in and get on my emails and Louis sends me an email and it's, it says, uh, he calls me Lannikins for reasons that don't matter. Lannikins, you need to know this. The First Baptist Church of Angleton, right across the street from the courthouse, has this billboard attached. And it's got this bill, you know, it's got this marquee, and it says, Attorney Mark Lanier uses foul language in the Lord's house. And I'm like, Every juror, every judge, they're all going to see this. Oh, my goodness. So I try to call Lewis. I can't reach him. I try to call the church. The church is closed. I'm getting on the Internet. I'm trying to find the home phone number for the preacher so I can call him at home and tell him what happened. And tell him, I'm, don't do this. Take it down, et cetera, et cetera. So I, 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 I can't get a hold of him. I, I leave this long extended message on the church answering machine 
about, please play this for the preacher. Please have him take this down. I, I, you know, I, I try real hard and da-da-da-da-da. And then I finally get a hold of Lewis. And I told Lewis what I was doing, and it's dead silent. And he says, you did not do that. And I said, yeah, I did, man. I've left this extended. He says, no, you did not do that. And I said, yeah, I just left this long message. I don't know what else to do. I need your help, brother. And he said, that whole thing was a prank. He said, that's not on the billboard. I made that up. That's Photoshop. And I said, well, the preacher's in for a surprise when he listens to his messages in the morning. So Lewis is at that point calling the as soon as the church opens the next morning, Lewis is calling the secretary. Can you delete this message that was left for the preacher? Secretary said, I don't even know you. I can't just delete a message on our phone. Please delete the message. That was left. Anyway, I have said things where you stick your foot in your mouth. I want to tell you something. God is gracious and God is good and he loves us and we're doing the best we can. And I'm going to skip through this one. Oh, but what a picture. Don't forget who you're talking about. I love that. We'll have to do that another time. Maybe next Sunday I'll throw that one in. I uh, don't have time. Oh, man, I had some good stuff. Sorry. Here's where I wanted to be. So my dear friend, Dennis Danielson, who I think may even be watching this, he lives uh, up in Canada at the Western End, so it's early for him. He's not at church yet. Dennis has just published another book. Uh, Regent College has published it. And it's a book he wrote entitled The Tao of Right and Wrong. Tao is, uh, and Taoism is the way, uh, uh, the road, and so this is the road of right and wrong, and it's his re- it's Dennis's rewrite uh, and modernizing of a book that C.S. Lewis wrote in the middle of World War II, actually delivered initially as addresses, and then became a book. And, and it is, uh, C.S. Lewis's book was The Abolition of Man. But it's a defense of the idea that there's objective value. The C.S. Lewis book was written about uh, uh, some teaching that was going on in the British school system at the time that said everything is subjective. The, the, the values, you know, I could say, oh, isn't, uh, uh, isn't this a, a, a good lesson? And what I mean is it's a good lesson to me, you know, that, that there's nothing objective. You know, Jesus had a good thing to say. Well, that just means it's good to me. You know, it's, it's all based on my subjective, subjective view, not objective right and wrong. And, and that's still going on in a lot of education and a lot of teaching and in our culture today. And it makes it very difficult for people to understand sin and right and wrong because we look at it in terms of what we think and how we feel instead of the idea that there's something out there that sets up what right and wrong is, an objective morality. So we've got a copy of this book. Uh, The publisher just gave us an outstanding opportunity to be able to do this. It's hardback. It's good. And I'm going to bless you in the name of Jesus and class will be over. I've got to hit the street and run fast because I've got to get to St. Louis, and I'm sorry about that. But uh, uh, you don't need to talk to me. What you need to do is go get a copy of this book. As you exit, where are they lined up? Brent, how do we do this? Come up here, and let's bless them together in Jesus, and you tell them how to get it, and I'm going to hit the road. In the name of Jesus, Father, we ask you to pour your blessings on our friends that hear this message today. May we see you not just as our teacher but as our Lord, and may we follow you dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.